The Boys from Biloxi is John Grisham's latest number one New York Times bestseller. In this epic novel of fathers and sons, loyalty and revenge, Grisham's unforgettable characters fight the good fight. The Boys from Biloxi is in stores now from Doubleday. You will fail. So what? Everybody does. But your gym, your watch, your yoga pants, they pretend you won't. So when you miss a day, eat the pancakes. Give up on a workout? You failed? Seriously, what the hell? We're body. We've been a part of that too, but not anymore. At body, we're rejecting perfection and embracing reality. Not in a pizza Monday kind of way, in a loving your whole life kind of way. In a, this workout is fun and it's okay if I take a week off kind of way. In an, I'm eating healthy and it's okay if I indulge kind of way. In a, I like myself no matter what kind of way. Yeah, you will fail. We all will. But we're not going to let that be the end. You see that? We're already making progress. So let's keep going. We are Body. Start your free trial at body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. Welcome, everyone, into Garden of Doom. And today we're welcoming back one of our favorite guests, Luke Michael Ironside. He's been on such shows as our show on Lilith and the Theosophical Underpinnings of Lucifer, which, by the way, still probably two years later, is regularly in the top 25 shows on any given 30-day period. Uh, I know originally he was did one of the shows directly related to the Nephilim Anthropology Conference. Um, I think this is your fifth time on the show. 
Yeah, I think so, Jeff. And it's always a pleasure to be back. There's always something new and interesting to discuss. It sure is. I mean, and your problem or my solution is that you keep booking yourself for new shows when you reveal things that you know about that, that are tied into everything. And so many things are intertwined. Um, but it's terrific. So listen, at some point, I'm going to send you that app for the, the cyber tailor and, you know, we'll fit you for the five-time guest jacket. It's, it's really awesome. Um, and it's a uh, completely non-flammable and I'm completely lying right now. Uh, but you probably already knew that. Um, but listen, one day when I have a budget, when I'm sponsored by Blue Chew and Manscaped and whoever else out there, Podbean, whatever, uh, you know, then I can get my guests these, you know, five-time you know, jackets or diamond rings or whatever the case might be. Um, anyway, Luke, why don't you introduce yourself? Because no one's going to do it better than you. Right. Well, as some might already know, due to me being on the show four times already, uh, as Jeff just mentioned, um, I'm a researcher of sort of all things esoteric. I'm also very interested in history. Um, I'm an English teacher by profession, and I'm quite interested in linguistics, which is something we're going to be discussing today. I like to see where languages come from and how they connect. And actually, that interest in how things connect applies to the other areas as well. So likewise, I'm interested in how esotericism relates to, say, mainstream religion. Uh, they're not quite so separate and distinct as they might sound, so I'm interested in what might be called the relationship between the mainstream and the fringe, and instead of seeing them as two distinct categories, seeing how they interrelate. Absolutely. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm involved in a few different things currently. Um, I'm the general secretary of the Old Catholic Education Society, which runs online events and other educational uh, events and courses related to Old Catholic theology. Um, I've been quite involved with the Theosophical Society um, over the past seven or so years. I'm a bit less so now than I was previously, but I remain a member of the Theosophical Society. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I'm sort of doing a few different things um, at once. You, you always have been. And then we have a little game that we always play because I, I know that this is your fifth time because you've come to us from New Zealand from Nairobi, Kenya, from Armenia, and from Brazil. So w where is Luke Ironside now? Right. Well, I'm actually back in Brazil. I'm in Puerto okay. Alegre, Brazil. Okay. Well, that's a different city uh, than you were the last time. So you're still a different place, but same country. We're repeating countries. Now you're getting boring on us. So Luke teaches English, but he teaches English in different countries. I, I assume it's somehow tied to the old Catholic Church, which is not the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, we're not going to get into that today, or at least I'm not. Maybe he will. Um, but today the topic is is twofold. We're going to talk about linguistics, which is an enormous topic. Uh, we have touched on it many times, uh, probably accidentally in some cases, when we talked about Indo-European and Proto-Indo-European and did shows on who were the who were the Huns and and things like that, uh, and some of the the shows with the uh, history of the the people of the Russian Empire, with J.P. Bristow. Uh, on purpose with our first show with Andy from History of Africa, we talked about African linguistics, which he, you know, really, he just stole his own material from his first episode ever on the History of Africa, which was so impressive to me that I begged him to do it again. And he said yes, and he's since been on the show a couple of times. We're also going to go through 
the root races, which are the seven root races or cultures, which is something that, you know, I don't know much about what it is. I think I think I know what it is, and and you know, but we'll let you know. I suspect we're talk we're going to talk about Tartaria, Hyperborea, Atlantis, you know, things like Lemuria and Mu, which some people say is the same, some people say is different. I don't know if we're going to get into Thule Ultima or Ultima Thule or you know or or or, or Agartha, which you know where where I'm trying to I'm trying to get a condo you know with a molten side view, but uh, I can't find a, a legitimate real estate agent down there. Anyway, uh, yeah, that is my one quote of bad joke for the day. So Luke, I'm going to let you take it in whatever whatever order one you want to give. You are a teacher by nature. I trust you inherently with uh, the organization of the show. Right, wonderful. Well, actually, these two topics, they sound quite distinct, but they're not because intrinsically, when you look at what linguistics is, it's the study of the evolution of language, of human language. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at what root races are, it's the theosophical conception of the evolution of humankind. So there is a relationship there because obviously as humankind evolves, so does language. The two are connected ideas. Uh, Linguistics is a quite well-established field, but it's also a field that's constantly changing and developing as more is discovered about different languages, as connections are either made or broken in the sense that sometimes false connections are made between languages or assumed where they, where they may not exist. So there's a bit of both going on. Um, as language changes, the field changes too. Root races, on the other hand, is not so much an idea which is scientifically accepted in, in the mainstream sense, but it is an idea which is esoterically influential. It originated in theosophy, but has spread to other esoteric philosophies and systems as well. Perhaps starting with linguistics would be a a good place to begin. So, yes, as a a teacher of language, I've always been interested in how things connect, like I mentioned before. And there are many connections between languages that many people don't either don't recognize or take for granted. And language in many ways shows that the world is a much smaller place than might otherwise be assumed. There are all sorts of fascinating um, connections between cultures which seem quite distinct. For instance, the idea that there are, there are some strong connections between, let's say, English and Sanskrit, for instance, due to their connection on the Indo-European family tree. Uh, language is itself fascinating because it's the attempt by humanity to conceptualize the world in words and as from a study say of theosophy and of esotericism something you quickly understand is that language is limited language cannot successfully encapsulate all aspects of the world but it attempts to do so so one's worldview is therefore limited by their language. That's a, that's a necessary fact, really, um, which is perhaps one very good reason to learn multiple languages um, or, in another sense, to become well-mastered in one's own language. Uh, so it could, it could be an argument for both of those. 
But He's working the, in New America. <laughs> right, yes. But the, the thing about language is that if you don't enhance your range of, of language, whether, again, in your own language or across multiple languages, you have a limitation, an unnecessary limitation on your ability to firstly conceptualize the world and secondly to express your ideas about the world. So it, it's very limiting if you, if you don't uh, enhance that ability. And understanding how different languages relate is also really important because it gives you a deeper understanding of the word. So whenever I encounter a new word, which is actually quite frequent, and that's something which I, I again think is necessary. If, you, if you're not regularly encountering new words, perhaps you're, you're doing something wrong because um, even as an English teacher, I'm, I'm constantly coming across new vocabulary. And yeah, anytime I, I do... Yesterday, hypogeneum, uh, which is, means underground, but it's usually, car, it's usually related to underground temples. Um, right. or, you, you know, which, so there's a, there's a literal meaning and then there's the larger, you know, the colloquial, the, the use of the meaning. But you're right, every, you, you should be expanding your knowledge. And if you are expanding your knowledge, you are inevitably going to get to new words, even if it's something that you would never under, like, you know, I, I listen to a lot of books on, on Audible and, you know, some of them, some of them I don't even know what they're going to be about before I start them. So one right now is on sort of like the history of science and he's using words that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm never going to use again. I don't know what they are, but when I hear them, I'm like, that's really cool. Right. Exactly. And whenever I come across a new word, I, I think the, the, the most important thing is to, sort of arrive at an understanding of the parts of the word, say of the suffixes, the prefixes, the etymology of the word. You should dissect it, you should look into it, because by doing that, you get the whole story of the word. And, and words are fascinating. They're, words can fall into three categories, really. They're either going to be living, endangered, or dead. And all three of these categories are, are interesting. They're like animals or living beings aren't they they've they've got their whole history they've they've got their birth they've got their evolution and they've got their death and it's really you know possibly if it's you know an archaic language or a word that's gone out of usage so it's really interesting to trace that and to understand the way in which the word is used it's relevant to maybe different environments or different uh different uses different contexts or the, perhaps the way that the word is completely changed to take on a meaning it never originally had. And you'll often find that words do differ significantly from their root words. From Five seconds left, and he shoots, he scores! I can't believe it! This is a moment for the history books. Secure the dub you've been craving with big, bold flavors from Firehouse Subs. Like our iconic hook and ladder sub with smoked turkey breast, Virginia honey ham, and Monterey Jack. Order now and score $2 off any sub purchase in the Firehouse Subs app when you enter promo code HOOPS. Limited time offer only on the Firehouse Subs app. Tap the banner now to download the Firehouse Subs app. If your bath is worn out, but you're not sure who to trust to replace it, trust Bathfitter. We've been custom crafting baths for over 35 years that are so durable, we offer a lifetime warranty. It just fits. Visit bathfitter.com to book your free consultation. A look at the etymology. But another great thing is you're able to build connections between one language and another, which is really useful even if you were not to learn another language, say when traveling or 
learning about another culture, you might be able to at least piece together some basic ideas from an understanding of those root words. Or you could have an interesting conversation with a guy like Luke, who does a show with you on Hermetism and talks to you about Hermes or Hermes Tresmegistus, and, and because you think you know root words and things like that, you go, "Oh my God, I hear try three, the Trinity, Trinity's everywhere," and you're like, "Well, it just means the the great magician." Um, but it's 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 still it's like, but that's still interesting. That's still something to learn, and we wouldn't have had that conversation. We wouldn't have had that little factoid in the show, which I thought was really interesting, had it not been me trying to put you know, a little bit of knowledge and misplacing in this case, but getting it corrected. And and I think that's amazing. It's, it's amazing. Like what you're saying about language is the same with concepts, because I think this is related. How so many gods or demigods or heroes sort of morph and some of them become, you know, like a, 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 some of them have direct cognates, but some of them sort of transform into others or you they become compounded. And people are like, oh, that's so confusing. How can a, Athena be, you know, like like Ishtar or, or you know, or or Kali or, or, or whatever it is? They're, they're so different in so many ways, but they're alike in other ways. Or how could it even be Lilith? Um, and But the same person, you know, if they're of my age, they remember when Batman was just an acrobat who was a detective that, you know, threw boomerangs and whatever – to now he's basically Iron Man who can build anything and, you know, and can combat Superman. You know, now if you put a poll on Twitter, which happens every two weeks, who would win Superman or Batman? To me, it's absurd. Superman, of course, but most people will say Batman because he's so smart and will tactically plan for it. You know, not to think that Superman can move like the Flash and squash his head like a grape, but that's not the point. The point is that Batman has morphed in, into one thing, you know, basically, a, you know, a detective into you know, someone who can take on the, you know, the, 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 the most supreme godlike, you know, uh, character in, in the uh, pantheon of DC comics. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just natural drug, but it, it's, it's this, it's the same thing. Sometimes, sometimes Hercules may have become Jesus, you know, who, who Jesus in his human form was weaker and then ascended, but they, you know, both are sort of hero of man and, you know, and then and ascended to full godhood. I mean, it's not an exact thing, but um, it's it's just interesting to find these parallels and and see where things morph, and then try and compare them to something that's a simpler concept. Anyway, I didn't mean to meander too much, but yes, I did. No, that's that's really relevant, Ashley, because I think that there's a danger in comparison and seeking parallels as well. There's there's a positive side to it, and there's also a danger. The, the positive side is that you the, the world is an interconnected place, so everything is already intrinsically interconnected. So that's that's just the you know, unity or the interconnectedness of reality is simply a, a basic fact. Uh, however, the danger comes when trying to force a connection between things which are not linked in the way that they may be supposed to be linked. So that can also be sort of a danger of say creating false comparisons or false parallels between things which may be connected in different ways but are not connected in the way that they might be assumed to be and yeah so there's there's two sides to it but going like for example going back to this this mention of underground temples if you take the word hypogea well hypo is a word which basically means under or below in its in its root sense and you can apply that to any other 
word which has hypo as a prefix. So if you get a word like hypothermia, the condition of having a low body temperature, we see the association between low and under. Or you might have something like a hypochondriac, someone who <laughs> underestimates their level of health, right? So there's, it's there's really weird apart for it. Uh, and I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it, sometimes in, in my world as a, as a lawyer, these things come into play. So anyone who has diabetes knows this too, because you mm -hmm. can have you can have your, your high blood level and you can also have your low blood level, which both result in, in shock to your system. Well, as a defense attorney, if you have a client who has, has diabetes um, and DUI, uh, driving while intoxicated or driving under the influence, it's often the same type of symptoms as either one of those. So you need to know what those are. And it comes up even in, in, well, hopefully not for our listeners, the most practical of ways. But for me, 25 years ago, when I used to do DWIs probably two or three times a week, oh, yeah, it, 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 it was very useful. And for those criminal defense attorneys out there who didn't know about this, well, here's two more arrows in your quiver. You're welcome. Yeah, well, I'm uh, as it happens, I'm a type 1 diabetic myself. So, yes, I'm very familiar with that. Uh, definition or that usage of hypo as well. It's in fact uh, in diabetic lingo, it's often just shortened to hypo or hyper yep. for the, the low or high uh, blood sugar levels. Um, yes. So yeah, it, it's useful because when you know this, you can then sort of piece together the meaning of, of many words. However, it's better not to assume the meaning. I mean, it, it's useful for temporarily getting the idea of the context. But sometimes under lichen, say the word, um, for example, in the word hypothermia, rather than meaning sort of under temperature, it's sort of a low temperature. So in different contexts, the meaning can change. And it's important to be aware of how the word is used to avoid using it in a way that's outdated or doesn't actually fit the context. And as a teacher of English to you know, foreign speakers of the language, that's that's a common issue. It's quite common to use a, a phrase which, okay, that makes sense. That that fits the dictionary definition, but that's not actually how we would use the word in modern English. So it's well, quite important to be aware of, of these. Here's, here's another one that we could use exactly, you know, in, in, your, in, in an exact parallel. This is the delta of the sigma, which, you know, are just Greek letters, but they mean the change of the, the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. Right, right, exactly. So yeah, like that goes back to what we were saying, that words change, words evolve. Yep. They come from certain origins, but they can, they can change in, in myriad ways. And it's good to know the history of the words. It's good to, to be aware of them and to see how they relate to other words. But it's also good to not obsess over them. So linguistics is a mixture of all of this. Linguistics involves etymology, but it also involves tracing the evolution of the words. It includes syntax, understanding the structure of sentences and how words fit into that structure. It's, it requires some understanding of culture as well and the, the cultural expectations associated with different words or the cultural taboos toward, uh, associated with others. So it's, it's really important to take all of this into context when approaching linguistics as a science. Absolutely. So I guess what we should do now is, is go into which are the, the linguistic families. We've already touched on Indo-European. So if you like, you can start there. Or if you like, you can start with the others. 
Yeah, sure. Well, uh, Indo-European is sort of the most well-known or relevant to the Western world, certainly. Um, Indo-European, it's it's a very broad category, but the name sort of suggests that, actually, because Indo here is obviously referring to the uh, the origin of the sort of Indian, certain of the Indian languages, in particular referring to Sanskrit, right? So it's more than European languages. It's not, and it doesn't include all European languages. That's another interesting uh, sort of side note about Indo-European languages. Right, like so Slavic it includes, is its own thing. I'm sorry? Like Slavic is its own thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. There's some which don't fit into the, into the category. Um, and then there's others which have obviously a, a strong Indo-European influence, but might not be considered to be purely Indo-European. So there's also others that are in that kind of gray area. Yeah. And just as in, within each family, there are also subfamilies. And this is going to relate to what we'll talk about later about root races, because within root races, there are also sub-races. So it's, we're really just using the same sort of categorization for two different subjects today. We're looking at the bigger general umbrella, and then we're looking at subcategories that fit under that giant umbrella. So if language is the giant umbrella here, then we get a smaller a smaller sort of subcategory of that, which is Indo-European, and within each of those we have further categories. In fact, a language itself is not just is not the smallest unit. We can't say that, say, a particular language is not the the atom of the in, in sort of the linguistic um, system of categorization, there are smaller pieces that fit within that language too. There are dialects, there are sort of var- variants of the language that change over time, such as Old English, Middle English, Early Modern English, and so on. So it, it's not as simple as it necessarily may sound. And then, of course, there's the perpetual war between American and British English, for instance. So there's there's... You know, you can't clearly answer what pure English is. There is no pure English. Oh, well, and, and the same thing. What do you mean perpetual war? We we won that war. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> I think <laughs> that's that's where that's where perpetual comes into it. The, the disagreement is ongoing. But um, well, they yes. don't understand what perpetual means. Let me tell you, we won. <laughs> right, but um, yeah, I think that's, that's the same for for any language. Uh, there's there's constant arguments about what, what constitutes a pure language. And I don't think any such thing as pure language exists. Language changes. as pure exists. But right. <laughs> but uh, language changes, you know, constantly. Even within a year, languages adapt to new trends and new vocabulary comes in as, as things happen. So uh, during the COVID, you know, situation, uh, all sorts of new words entered the language. And uh, since the... Uh, the advent of the internet, of course, languages drastically changed. Um, but anyway, uh, I digress. We were discussing language families. So starting with the the easiest, I think, or the most relevant to us, we've got the Indo-European language. Some of the obvious ones which fit within this family would be English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Russian, Dutch. So some of these are some of the maybe the most well-known um, it can be separated into many branches. Um, those branches are often, or those those groupings, we could say, are often 
referred to as, for example, Albanian is a subdivision of that. You get Armenian is another subdivision. Celtic is a subdivision. Germanic is a subdivision. Germanic's an important one because English obviously comes primarily from this Germanic subbranch with a strong Latin influence as well. Um, you get the Hellenic subbranch, you get, and, and so on. There's, there's many, but these are, and the Italic uh, subbranch, uh, Indo-Iranian. These are some of the bigger headings. So that's what I mean that language itself, an individual language, is not really the smallest unit. We go from the bigger subheading of Indo-European into these subdivisions, into the language, then within that language you get those smaller subdivisions, like if you were to go into the the Celtic languages, you'd get um, you'd get a lot of languages which are sort of extinct, for Gaelic. instance. But you'll you'll get languages like Gaulish, you'll get Britonic, you'll get uh, Celti-Iberian. So you'll get you'll get a lot that are sort of extinct, um, but you'll also get some which continue in languages like Welsh, for instance. So it's, it's quite interesting to see that relationship between. Where does Basque fit in? I'm sorry, that's not anywhere near uh, Celtic, but uh, or, or is it? Yeah. Is Basque Indo-European, or is it is it one of those its own thing? Bienvenido a Kaiser Permanente. El doctor ya te puede ver. Verá que aunque eres muy activo, ahora te cansas más rápido de lo normal. Verá que a menudo almuerzas comida rápida. Verá que pones a tu familia primero y tu salud tiende a caer en segundo o tercer lugar. Y claro que verá que tienes el azúcar alto. Igual que tu papá. En Kaiser Permanente trabajamos juntos para ver todo lo que tú eres y darte el cuidado que tú mereces. Kaiser Permanente, para todo lo que tú eres. Leftovers. Or. The DMV. Or. House cleaning. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We were prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Um, yeah, but Baskers, it, it falls into the pro, uh, sort of the um, subdivision of a subdivision of an Indo-European language, yes, okay. uh, from my understanding, from from memory. Uh, it, it is a subdivision of Indo... It falls under that category of Indo-European, yes. Um, but it takes influence from sort of non-Indo-European languages as well. Uh, it's not a language I know a lot about because it's not one I've encountered or uh, sort of studied in particular before. But from my understanding, it's a... Indo-European language with some non-Indo-European elements, which many languages have. Right. And because there's so many, you know, so because the North America and South America were basically colonized by Indo-European speaking peoples, uh, you know, basically all of South America and, and Central America is not a place, but it will just call Central America, you know, there's North and South America, you know, separated by the Isthmus of Panama, but you know, from south of the Rio Grande in Texas, you know, down to the Iberian Peninsula is Spanish and with a lot of Portuguese involved. And then, you know, north of the Rio Grande, I mean, with not I'm ignoring migrations, but you've got mostly English, but of course you also have, you know, a fair amount of French as well, but all from the Indo-European and just because of the 
populations of, of those two continents being what they are now, Indo-European is, is especially. But I have, I have a question for you because, you know, the Indo-European, you know, like you said, it's, it's not just, you know, it's also proto-Iranian, it's Sanskrit, parts yeah. of Indian languages. And of course, some of this uh, dovetails or, or has a Venn diagram with thing, with peoples like the Scythians and, and other sort of steppe peoples. Is there any Indo-European influence in the further Asian languages that, that, that became what we, what we think became the first nations of North and South America, or is that a different language group? So if I caught that question, it was have the, has Indo-European language influenced the say native languages of the American continent? Right. So it's like the Algonquins, the Iroquois, the the Apache, the Mayans, Mm -hmm. you know, Incas. I'm I'm guessing the answer is no. I mean, I'm sure they've influenced it now, but, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, I I mean, like, you know, thousands of years ago. Right. Um, I wouldn't expect so. Um, From my understanding, I I wouldn't expect that there's been at least any strong influence uh, if there there was a slight influence there or that this was a late influence. So, uh, for, for instance, when, we, when we're talking about baskets, it's generally considered an Indo-European language, but it traces back to pre-Indo-European times as well. So it has, a let's say, a pre-Indo-European root, but with a general sort of Indo-European form nowadays. Um, so with most of these indigenous languages or the indigenous language families of the Americas, um, some of them are language isolates which are languages which actually don't relate to others some of them fall under a broader family um but except for the post let's say post contact sort of influence of language there's not really an an ancient or archaic similarity or or shared origin with with those languages as far as i'm aware it's It's, it's a completely distinct line on the family tree of languages. Yeah, because it's interesting is, you know, like you said, there are comparisons that are false and there are comparisons that are incomplete. But a lot of it, if you look at enough mythology or religion, whatever, philosophies, however you want to call them, you know, there there's a lot of uniformity around the world, but it, it seems like those ideas predated even the language overlaps. Yeah. Uh, so some of them are related in influence, some of them are not, so, you know, some of them might be that Jungian, you know, convergence, you know, or divergence theory of a collective psychology. Some might just be that we're all seeing the same stars and came to the same conclusions. Who knows? Uh, I, you know, I'm not smart enough to figure out how every culture has a story about the seven sisters, but you can only see sis- six sisters now, but you, you could see seven sisters 100,000 years plus again. Um, yeah. You know, so anyway, uh, but yeah, uh, back back to you, sir. Right. Yeah. So that's quite interesting um, because language and ideas are so interconnected and yet it is entirely possible for ideas to develop separate from language. So in in the sense that there might be an idea, say, in certain Indo-European languages, which is very anomalous to an idea in a different language family, um, but which evolved completely independently from one another. So that does happen. But then that's just the nature of, you know, if if two people look at the same thing, they're going to come up perhaps with 
an, an idea which could be anomalous. If they're trying to describe it objectively, then they may come up with an anomalous uh, idea um, expressed in different words. So, yes, there's two ways in which this is happening. And one way there's the sharing of ideas through language, where a concept is developed in one language and then share, is shared to other, language, uh, other places through the transmission of language. So that's one, one obvious way in which language evolves. Then there's the alternative, which is that two completely unrelated cultures or languages um, have, a, you know, experienced something and come up with a concept to explain that phenomenon and evolve, therefore, two different ideas using two different languages um, to discuss the same reality, essentially. Okay, so we've, we've covered Indo-European, you know, probably as much as we need to or can for this purposes of this show. Um, I mean, may, maybe not, we'll see. But what would be the, the next biggest, I guess we should go to, to the neighbor, uh, you know, you know, what are the roots of most of the Asian language, if in fact it's one? Uh, and then I guess we can go into Africa. Uh, and and I'm not really sure where like Hebrew and Arabic fall into this continuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's, there's dozens and dozens of language families. So it's, it's not always so simple as particularly as the Indo-European one. The Indo-European is, is quite it's what you could call like a, a macro family in the sense that it links together a huge number of languages which are quite clearly connected. Whereas what you find in Asian languages in particular is that there are there are multiple family groups and it's, they're not always related, although some of them are. Um, so you get ones like, for example, you get the Austronesian um, language group, you get the sometimes called the Sino-Austronesian, and they're sometimes considered to be connected. Uh, you get the East Asian family group. You get, um, uh, you get, you get various others as well. Um, and, yeah, there, there's always some disagreement about how connected they are or how disconnected they are. There's, like we mentioned earlier, there's sometimes a tendency to exaggerate the connectedness between languages, but then on the other hand, you might get the hesitancy of, you know, wanting to ensure that they're well-researched before you decide this language and that language are related. Yeah. But um, yeah, well, one large group would be the, the Sino-Tabitian languages, which are considered to be basically the, the languages which are now well-spoken in... Uh, China and the large regions of China, obviously also in India, Burma, Nepal. So these are some roots for those. Japan and Korea too, I would imagine, since the, the characters have oftentimes the same meanings. Yeah, yeah. So yes, that's the other interesting thing between characters and say, you know, putting things into to written form and spoken language. So ten, generally when looking at language, it's the spoken language which tends to be focused on because to take an example, let's say uh, you take Vietnamese or say let's take um, Tagalog in the Philippines, um, we find that these languages have essentially non-Indo-European roots and yet they're written using the, the Latin script nowadays, mm-hmm. right? So just because a language uses certain characters um, 
doesn't necessarily mean or imply a shared root, uh, but it's possible. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, actually, when it, when it comes to things like Japanese, Korean, um, Chinese, yeah, Japanese and Korean are what you would call hybrids, hybrid languages, yeah, so that they, they take on certain elements of the Austronesian languages, but also take on certain, certain elements of the Sino-Tibetan languages. What would be Mongolian and like sort of a Siberian, like Tatars and Uyghurs and, you know, and, and all the, the Gurs, all, all the, you know, the original Turkic, the original Hunnics, the original mm-hmm. Iranians. Yeah. Well, that, that's the Mongolic language family. So you're referring to the, mostly the language, say of, um, yeah, Mongolia and some of the smaller tribal groups that, would have distinct languages within that. So there's quite a few languages across that region, of course. So, um, so that would be... The, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so that, that would be the, the Mongolic language family. Is that sometimes called High Altai or something like that? Or, or am, I, am I mixing things up entirely? Um, high, sorry, that was High... Altai, I might be pronouncing it wrong. Possibly, um, because there are different... There's sort of different categories or distinctions used by different researchers. So, yeah, there's probably multiple groups. And, of course, then it depends how big you want your language family to be. So, basically, it's kind of like the argument about whether there's, you know, seven continents or four continents. It's that type of problem because, you know, there's the broader category. You can go as broad as you like. Or you can sort of get narrower and narrower and say, actually, this one is distinct from that one because of this characteristic is not found in this language. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of disagreements about how to separate the language groups as well. Yeah. Which can be, uh, yeah, yeah. Which, which can be a sort of a source of, of confusion. That's yeah. okay. I mean, you know, I think people who listen to the show trust the hosts and, and come for information, but I, I think they know that the world is full of nuance and, and ambiguities and a lot of things are in the, the view of whatever perspective, you know, you're on. So that is fine. Um, while we have this break, I, I not really break, but I, I have heard of a language group called Finno-Ugrarian and Uralic. Um, those both sound like they would be European, though Finno-Ugrarian does sound sort of Eurasian, Uralic, I assume, is related to the Ural Mountains, but maybe the mountains were named after the language. Um, I don't know. Are those, are those part of Indo-European, or, or are those their own distinct things? Uh-huh. Yeah, but Uralic is the, those sort of languages in Europe which don't fit in so clearly into that uh, Indo-European language family. So you'll find things like um, Hungarian, Finnish, Estonian, these type of languages. Um, you also get uh, Sami and so on. So a, a lot of these languages are uh, Uralic, Uralic languages. And what's Finno-Ugrarian? Is that a language group or is that a people group? Um, fi- Finno-Ugrarian, from my understanding, that's I think that also does include... I, I think it falls under the Uralic... Uralic umbrella. ...category. I mean, yeah, so I think it's a smaller, smaller category within the broader Uralic uh, category, from my understanding. Yeah. Great. All right. Uh, so what about, like, uh, Hebrew and Arabic, which are obviously closely related to each other? 
Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you get the Semitic family of languages as well. So, this, and this is um, sort of including Hebrew. We get, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, he, Hebrew is an interesting one, of course, because of its influence on Western thought. So it's, I mean, when you take things like the the scriptures and the Bible and so on, and you consider the way that this has been translated from this language to that language to that language. Um, that's another instance of where the language is really important to to understand because these words, they can change meaning as they're translated. So that's a good instance of very practically speaking how it's important. Um, so the Semitic language itself falls under a broader category of the Afro-Asiatic languages sometimes called the Hamito-Semitic language family as well. That includes about 300 languages from across Western Asia, North Africa, parts of the Horn of Africa. So it's quite a broad category of Afro-Asian languages. It includes the Berber language, for instance, which is found in Northern Africa and Morocco, but it also includes the Egyptian and Semitic and, and Chadic. So all these are essentially falling under that category. Um, and the Semitic... Cheap plugs for the prior shows. One of the show I alluded to was Andy from the History of Africa. On, I think it was called Into Africa, about uh, uh, where we covered a lot of linguistics. But also we did a show on who are the Berbers. We also did a show on who are the Moors. So uh, those are, I believe, the three shows that uh, he and I have done together on Garden Doom. So check that out. Give you a little perspective there. Sorry, as you were. Yeah, right. Well, going back to the Semitic, because this is one which is, well, it's of a lot of interest to esoteric um, researchers for for many obvious reasons, um, but it's also of great interest to, say, uh, Christians in general or or people who fall under the Abrahamic sort of uh, religious worldview, worldviews, perhaps. So, yeah, the Semitic family includes the Akkadian, the Hebrew, the Phoenician, Canaanite languages, uh, Aramaic, right? So it's extremely significant, of course, from a biblical perspective. Um, Yes, so so it includes all of these. And that that comes under this broader category of what might be called either the Afro-Asiatic or the Hermeto-Semitic. There's, again, various phrases to sort of categorize this and they don't always strongly agree on what is included or what isn't. Yeah. I want to take this instance. I I don't know that I did or didn't, but for those who don't know, Luke is a cleric in, in the old Catholic church. So I have no idea whether or not my comparison of Hercules to Jesus was offensive at all, but it occurs to me that it might be. So if it was, I apologize. He's shaking his head. No. And almost laughing. No, 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 no problem. No, I think, uh, it's always good to sort of take these things in the way that they're intended. So I, I, I think, you know, finding finding offense in a comparison um, which is in, intended to draw connections between things is, is sort of a, a wrong reason for offense. So Again, there's nothing I- wrong with making a comparison between, say, a figure like Christ and a figure who, let's say, may be entirely mythological or entirely mortal, there's not necessarily anything offensive about that because you're simply saying that certain qualities which were characterized by Christ could also be characterized 
in other instances by other people. Right. Well, I'm glad you understand. I thought that you would, but I wanted to put it out there in public, in real time, live for us, just because I take guesting very seriously. And I, and I don't ever want to intentionally, you know, uh, offend a guest. And, and even though I didn't, I, I, I think it's important that the audience or potential guests know that, you know, if I have, it's probably unintentional, but if I catch it, I'm going to spend three and a half minutes of showtime to uh, explain it and, and go, ooh, that hit me like a V8. You know, it hit me a little bit late, but it, it hasn't been bugging me for the last 20 minutes. Right. No problem. No problem. Yeah. So, yeah, well, these these languages and sort of their connections get complicated when you try to put them into very clear-cut boxes. Yeah. So it's, it's a great idea, and it's the same with root races, which we might turn to uh, shortly. But it's a great idea to look at them as sort of con- convenient categorizations for the purpose of studying connections. But they're not perfect. They're not perfect uh, classifications. Yeah, that, that is for sure. And, and it's dangerous, and it's so tempting because there's so many, you know, you know, if people want to call me a researcher, fine. I listen to people study. So I guess that's a form of research or lazy research. But there's so many YouTube channels and podcasts and, and books and there's you know, conferences and there's a whole industry in this. And it's very tempting to draw parallels to everything, you know, every flood myth is the same. And, they, and, and they're not. They, I mean, one region can flood while another region is, you know, normal while another region is a desert. Uh, you know, there have been global floods, but not every flood is a global flood. And, you know, and, and you know, just because the Dogon, you know, their, their legend is that people from the stars who were dolphins came down doesn't mean it's the same as the, the, uh, with the precursors to the Hopi. I'm not sure, but I think it might be the Hopi who have the Anasazis who came down, who were sort of almost like ant people that are, you know, compared to the Anunnaki legend of, People came down to build this, you know, basically a human slave race to do gold. And just because those are similar doesn't mean they're the same thing. doesn't mean that they're not either. It also doesn't mean that the Book of Enoch or the Fallen Angels, that that's not the same thing. But it doesn't mean that it is or isn't either. Uh, and they're not all necessarily in the same time period. And what Luke is saying, and I'm just expanding it to a broader thing, is I'm as guilty of this as anyone. One of the reasons for the show is to try to figure out what these things are. And it's it's really impossible without actually being there at least at this at, at this point because they're not all necessarily the same even though they may have elements of the story that, that seem similar. Right, and I think well the, the approach I take is really quite simple. I think just let the truth lead you where it leads. So instead of coming to one of these questions of say are these two things connected? Uh, do all cultures have the same concept of a, a world flood? Are uh, the Nephilim of this culture the same sort of phenom- phenomenon as the Nephilim of this culture? Instead of approaching that with some pre, sort of pre-assumption about what their interconnectedness is, simply research the possible connections. There's nothing wrong with thinking, okay, perhaps this one connects to that. So research the possible connections and allow the evidence to lead where it does. So if it leads towards a deeper connection, then great. Go into that deeper connection, explore it more. If it leads to some sort of contrast, which seem that they simply cannot be reconciled, then perhaps it's maybe you could argue instead a shared theme, the importance of a shared theme, but not necessarily a shared event. 
Um, or perhaps it's it's a complete um, sort of dead end. In which case, it's still interesting. Then you've got two phenom you've got you've got phenomena instead of phenomenon. You've got two interesting uh, you know cases to explore and look at. So I th- I think the world is interesting enough without having to try and force a conception of reality onto it. Absolutely, just just following where it goes is already fascinating, and that's. That's true with languages. I think it's true with religion. It's true with the paranormal. It's true with all these different things. Just where, wherever it leads, it's interesting. And, and there's something to be discovered. There's already enough interesting parallels that new ones don't have to be forced or invented. Yeah, my, my limited experience with you has led me to believe that when in doubt, just agree with Luke. He's probably right. Well, actually, that's something I would advise against because, again, I think it's it's a good idea to, you know, explore for yourself and discover what's out there. But to do it, it's important to do it with that open mind and to, a willingness to be wrong as well. Well, it's the great really conundrum important. now is that now I agree with that and now I don't know what to think. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's always that balance between trust say, trusting people who are knowledgeable in one area or another, and self-discovery. And there needs to be a healthy balance between the two. So um, generally, self-discovery and trust in, let's say, authority or trust in someone who is knowledgeable should, should be able to interconnect without much disagreement. If there's a lot of friction or disagreement and one's trust in, say, the research of one person is not fitting well with their own experience, that's maybe a symptom that something's not quite right. Um, so, yeah, generally, if your own experience is adding up to what multiple researchers are saying, that's a good sign. But, of course, you also want to avoid sort of only reading the works or following along with researchers who agree with your ideas because then you get this sort of bias confirmation and it's a problem because it just reinforces maybe an idea which is you know or founded on on principles which are not sound yeah so you've got you've got to also look at the opposite side and put that against information may well be one of the top five problems in the world today and folks because my my editor and publisher and fiance La Sicaria is out of the country at the moment and can't edit, you will not be treated to the outro song, which after this conversation would have definitely been connected by Collective Soul. And what's more appropriate than that? So just go, ah, ah, you all know the song. So sing it in your heads when, when the show goes off. Okay, wonderful. And yeah, I think... Looks like what's going on here. <laughs> He's too old on drugs. <laughs> yeah, but I, I very much agree with you about, about bias confirmation as being a, you know, a great... I'd almost use the words evil in the sense that it can lead to, to evil consequences. It, it, it's at least a great cause of, of evil, and it's a great cause of ignorance of willful ignorance and i think ignorance itself results in a lot of harm um so the best way to avoid that from what i've sort of discovered or from from my own experience is to not close your mind to anything just because it's said by someone you disagree with 
on certain levels doesn't mean there's no value to it. So for instance, um, despite being a Christian, I'll, I'll quite happily read the research and even value or respect uh, the work of, say, atheists. Um, I'm a big fan of, of Richard Dawkins, mm-hmm. the UK, a well-known atheist. Um, I'll happily read the work of people from different religious perspectives, uh, different different philosophies, completely different ways of thinking. Um, so I, what I think about that is that there's no harm in the truth. There's no harm in reality. So but basically, if someone's saying something which is founded in truth, it's not something to be afraid of. And likewise, if someone's saying something which is simply not true, it also, you know, can't hurt you. So just be open-minded to what different people say, but obviously compare that against your own experience and against evidence. Absolutely. Well, just keep listening to Garden of Doom and, we're, and we'll get you enough different perspectives and views that, that, that at some point you'll hear so many different things that if you don't take on your own journey, I guess the closest substitute is is listening to my journey, which, you know, may, may parallel yours or maybe save you the efforts, which, you know, I know that Luke's not encouraging laziness, but, you know, how, how, how can I call you out when I'm doing the same thing myself, just under the guise of a podcast? Anyway, enough about me. Nobody cares. They want to hear about you and they want to hear from you. Um, have we done with the language groups? Is there any major ones that, that we need to cover or embellish upon? Bienvenido a Kaiser Permanente. El doctor ya te puede ver. Verá que aunque eres muy activo, ahora te cansas más rápido de lo normal. Verá que a menudo almuerzas comida rápida. Verá que pones a tu familia primero y tu salud tiende a caer en segundo o tercer lugar. Y claro que verá que tienes el azúcar alto, igual que tu papá. En Kaiser Permanente trabajamos juntos para ver todo lo que tú eres y darte el cuidado que tú mereces. Kaiser Permanente, para todo lo que tú eres. Leftovers or the DMV or house cleaning. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Or elaborate. I'd say there's, there's a lot, but it's something which can only be very broadly touched upon, obviously, in, in a limited time. Um, you can also make categories like for example you could make a subcategory of the romance languages you could make a subcategory of the slavic languages we mentioned before um yeah so there's a lot but it's something which it's just it's just good to be aware that these language groups exist and maybe to maybe anytime you encounter a new language it's worth kind of looking up where does this fit in the different language groups So instead of trying to cover every single language or every single language group, perhaps apply it to your own, to to a sense that would be useful uh, to you. So obviously, if you're living in a certain area of the world, look up the language groups and look up the different languages which have been, or which are, or which have been historically significant to that region, just to have some awareness of it. But... Yeah, it's not necessary to, to sort of cover every single one. The same basic principles could be seen as applying to each in the sense that 
these languages evolve either independently or in connection with others, uh, generally through migration and also through things like trade, there will be uh, different connections. But one thing that really is worth mentioning is the different the scale of the, the, the scale of vulnerability of different language groups. So language groups are categorized according also to their vulnerability, much like animal families are as well. So you get families, you get language families which are extinct, some which are endangered, some which are categorized as safe. So that's also quite significant because you'll you'll tend to find the ones which are closer to the safe scale as being ones which are major languages or well spoken. You get ones which more fall into the vulnerable or endangered categories, which tend to be ones which are maybe spoken only in one particular region without much spread. Um, or which have suffered um, persecution in the past. And it sounds a bit maybe unusual to hear about the persecution of languages, but it's certainly something which uh, has happened systematically, uh, especially in the past few hundred years. Um, not so much nowadays, thankfully, but and in fact, there's been language revivals, um, but it's something that has happened. And... Because talking from my own experience, for example, um, I was born on the island of Guernsey, which is just off the coast of France, and it's it's a tiny island. Um, it's it's part of the Channel Islands. It's got a population of about sixty thousand, which is you know probably the biggest that population has ever been. So it's it's a very small place. Um, but they do have, or you could almost say had their own language, so that the native language of Guernsey, rather than being English or French, is Guernesius. And Guernesius is a, a, what you would call an, a heavily endangered language, yeah, in the sense that the total number of people who speak it is somewhere in the range of 200. Oh, yeah. So about 200 people speak it, and most of those people would be elderly. Um, but as an interesting example of how languages die, um, Guernsey, this island, was the only, it's sometimes called the, it's not really part of the UK, but it's often referred to as the only part of the UK that was invaded and occupied by Nazi Germany in World War II. So the island was occupied by Nazi forces for a four-year period, from 1941 to 1945. And during that period, all of the children were permitted to move abroad, to, to move to England to study at schools there. Prior to the 1940s, the, la- the main language of Guernsey had been Guernesius. That was the main language group. Most people did speak it. It's a form of Norman French. Um, however, the, all these children, five years later, came back to Guernsey speaking English. And Sorry. now English is the, the major group. So it just shows you how vulnerable languages and it's it's interesting uh and as another personal example i grew up in new zealand and in new zealand uh you obviously think of it as a you know an english-speaking country but really it's uh a bilingual country i would say the maori language is also intrinsically important to the country and the maori language is the language of the indigenous people to the islands um and maori went through a period of persecution 
during the British colonial period. Um, Maori children were basically forced to speak English in school. They were strongly discouraged from speaking Maori. Um, and the, the language of government, language of education, the, just the, the language of everything important was English. That all started to change in the 1970s, and there was this huge push for, for Maori uh, revival. And now this language has gone from being endangered to being, you know, much further towards the safe uh, area of that of that range. So well, I, I credit the rock with that, Dwayne Johnson and, and, <laughs> and the tribal tattoos. I have um, four types of languages. I think to ask you, what is their family? And one, I suspect you just touched on though. I, I can't be sure, but one would be, I'm just going to ask all four at the same time. One is Aboriginal Australian, which is probably similar to Maori, but maybe not. The other is Pacific islands, which I know is not just one language, but chances are influenced by the same family or roots are the same family group, but we'll find out. Third is ancient Egyptian before Arabic. And then the, the last is Sumerian slash Babylonian with some assumption that they're at least, if not the same or, or evolve from the same language group, which can might be an incorrect assumption. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, well, the, the family groups for the Aboriginal languages of Australia are actually mostly distinct. There's, there's actually 23 independent families within the Aboriginal languages, and each one of them has multiple languages within it. So, of course, some of them are, most of them are smoke, uh, endangered in that they're spoken by very few uh, members of the you know, of particular tribes and so on. But it's a bit different than the Maori. So unlike the Maori language, which is kind of, we could say, an entire sort of um, distinct language which fits clearly into one category, the families in the, the, lang- the families of the uh, indigenous people of Australia are much more varied. So th- there's many but none of them are particularly, say, well-known. For instance, there's the, like the Tasmanian. Within the Tasmanian, you get the Northeastern, the Southeastern, the Western Tasmanian. Uh, you get other categories like the Dali, which again can be Western, Eastern, Northern, Southern. So you, you get quite uh, broad categories of these. So they're not related to the, 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 the Chinese language or the, the Tibetan that you were talking about. They're, they're, they're their own distinct family group. They're their own distinct families. Mm-hmm. That's right. And the and I think, islands, which is, you know, we're moving slightly, I guess, eastward, uh, north and eastward from mm-hmm. Australia. Yeah. So you get the, you get a category for Indo-Pacific language, Indo-Pacific language family as well, um, which that would be like the macro family. So that includes things like the languages of Papua New Guinea. It includes things like... Um, the, the languages of, well, under one grouping, you could put the Tasmanian languages under that, uh, according to some, you know, some researchers. Uh, it gets various other languages which are shared by certain small groups of Indians. So you get like the Nahali language, which comes from that as well. Hmm. So this, this is shared with certain Indian languages, but minor Indian languages. Except to those who speak it. All right, so uh, ancient Egyptian, where we have uh, hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, so sort of a- the ancient 
ancient Egyptian. Yeah. Well, broadly, that would come under the Afro-Asiatic language family, which we touched upon before, the same one including Hebrew, for example. So Semitic also. Well, not Semitic in the sense that Semitic is a subdivision under the broader family. So again, there's divisions within divisions. So sometimes a comparison might be being made between, let's say, a subdivision and a language family. But that would be a false comparison. Okay, so there's Indo-European and we've got Germanic. There's 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 Asian, Afro-Asiatic, and Semitic would be underneath that. Yeah, so it's it's better to, for example, first recognize what category you're dealing with. Are you dealing with a family, the broadest you know category? Are you dealing with a subdivision of that family, or are you dealing with a language, or are you dealing with a dialect? Once you recognize what exactly it is that you're dealing with, then you can make those comparisons a bit more successfully than making comparisons between, say, a family and a dialect for instance you know which would be a bit more difficult so yeah that comes under the as the family the broadest category that's a branch of the afro-asiatic language then the last was sumerian babylonian under the assumption that they are in fact related or have come from the same root right um that's called a language isolate which we touched upon before as well sumerian is a language isolate so it that means as far as researchers have discovered it doesn't relate to say ancient egyptian interesting yeah. although a lot of a lot of uh, you do get a lot of maybe more pseudo scientific uh, or pseudo historical theories which do like to try and make those connections like we touched on before because it, it looks similar it, right? the hieroglyphics yeah and but then you you could quite easily argue that hieroglyphics are quite a superficial sort of connection to build between two things because uh, hieroglyphics sort of originated as pictures of, you know, events or phenomena. Um, So originating sort of as pictural characters, it's quite obvious that different languages would, would originally, you know, form characters which are hieroglyphic in nature. And then over time that these would evolve to take on more abstract meanings. So there's not necessarily any very solid foundation between the two. And sorry, you said Sumerian and Babylonian uh, under the belief that they're likely directly related. But, uh, you know, again, Mm -hmm. that's an assumption based on very little. Oh, well, if you're referring to Akkadian, uh, which was a native language of Babylon. So Akkadian was actually a Semitic language. Therefore, it was part of the Afro-Asiatic. Okay. And Sumerian was the isolate. So that. Excellent. So. Akkadian is therefore somewhat related to, say, the Egyptian language, but this is, you know, this is going far back. Sure. So it's, it's, yeah, there, there is a connection, but so, so it's the like of Gilgamesh, they're distant cousins. The epic of Gilgamesh was Sumerian, Babylonian is like Hammurabi, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. Very good. Excellent. I think we've covered the linguistics pretty well. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but otherwise we can go to the root races, which. Uh, by the way, no one is endorsing it, and I know that anybody who talks about root races, if you want to go into white supremacy or any kind of supremacy, you can find it in in the root races. We're just we're just doing from an informational standpoint here. You know, nobody assume any bias whatsoever. Please, okay. With that little disclaimer, because I know how dangerous this can be. Um, 
let's, let's try to keep, we're going to keep it not dangerous. This is just for information and, and fun. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's quite easy to sort of, yeah, like it, it's important to start this off with a disclaimer, but it's quite easy to sort of just put that side of things aside because looking at the time that the root races ideas were propounded by Madame Blavatsky, um, this was prior to, let's say, the, the anti-Semiticism and prior to Adolf Hitler, prior to the Fool Society and all of these these things which emerged uh, later. Now, those things did draw. It's true that some of those, those sort of, let's say, the esoteric racism which emerged in Germany in the early 20th century and maybe late 19th century, it did draw from theosophy, but it wasn't theosophical in nature. So there's no, there's no connection between the original theosophical conceptions and the later sort of misuse of theosophical concepts and terms, which were used in the, in the years preceding Nazi Germany. Um, but that's something we can, we can get to. Um, first, it might be good to put this into the context of what theosophy or how theosophy came about. Sure. So very briefly, theosophy was or is, I should say, a, a worldview or a philosophy, if you like. Uh, again, people sort of disagree about what it is exactly, but it's, it's something. It's, um, it's, a, it's not a religion. That's something that basically everyone agrees on. So you can say what it's not bit harder to say what it is but let's say it's a system of ideas uh which were made public to the world by madame hp blavatsky um in the late 19th century now madame blavatsky was a, a russian esotericist uh she was born into nobility she started traveling the world at a young age she was sort of a bit disinclined towards her own culture and upbringing and had a much uh, deeper attraction to the east so she was particularly fascinated by india uh, she went to india she went to well, she traveled all around really but she went to india and was highly influenced by their philosophies uh this was all put forward in a couple of volumes in isis unveiled and in secret doctrine in two volumes uh yes and, and these books sort of put forward a system of evolution now, Madame Blavatsky made it very clear that she did not consider these to be her own ideas. Rather, these were ideas which were passed on to her by certain teachers, um, certain teachers who had imparted these ideas to her, um, often referred to as the Mahatmas or the Masters of Wisdom. You'll find these references to these Mahatmas now in not only in theosophy, you'll hear about them a bit in other sort of like New Agey or Ascended Masters type um, sort of, let's say, new religious movements and so on. Uh, the Theosophical Perspective was a little bit different in how they might be seen. They won't seem to be necessarily discarnate sort of spirits as such. They were physical human people um, who possessed special spiritual knowledge. And they, but they're very much human. They're not like they're they, not they were like, human. Not like to, yeah. not like Toth the Atlantean or no, or uh, illuminaries, which are often you know sort of sort of like uh, corporeal ish spirit guides, yeah. almost like they're you know something slightly below angel. Right. No, they were they were sort of 
physical, imperfect, uh, flesh and blood humans. Perfect. Yeah, so, yeah. And that's where the theosophical perspective dis- differs from some of the the later interpretations. Yeah. But in any case, uh, Menem Bavatsky came into possession of this knowledge about the uh, birth of the cosmos, the uh, birth of the universe itself, the evolution of the solar system and our globe, and the root races or the, the people which inhabit it. So to give a very basic definition of root race, root race is a category, a category of human development or a category of human civilization. It's not so much about race in the sense of, um, in the sense that race might be used nowadays. It's more that within one root race, there may have been multiple or many uh, different races according to the modern sort of use of the term. So a root race was a stage of development. And within each root race, there would also be sub-races. And the root races, uh, there were seven of them. Seven is a very important number uh, in theosophy. Seven, or the septenary division of the universe, or sometimes called the septenary uh, constitution, is considered to be a a sevenfold category, which applies to the whole universe. So basically everything from the universe itself to the smallest atom can be categorized into seven levels, but these seven levels are all interconnected. So we could consider the seven root races as being just the seven aspects of humanity considered as a whole. And they are chronological, but they're not strictly chronological. In the sense that it's not like this one root race, this root race develops and dies out, and then the second root race begins. Each root race is the progenitor of the next. Right. And then each root race coexists with the next for a period of time. There's overlap. So, just like the just yeah. like real world. Yeah. So that, that's essentially how, how it is. And especially with the, uh, the, the way it works is the first few root races went from being sort of, let's say, more spiritual to more physical so they start off being rather uh non-physical or only well they're they're all physical but less material less uh solid let's say than the late than the humans so they were of a sort of ethereal nature they're described as as being in the secret doctrine so a somewhat ethereal nature um in the first root race then from the the first is often called the, the polarian root race they were considered to be composed of matter, but this is etheric matter. So it's not matter in the sense of what we would consider matter to be nowadays. Um, they had their own way of reproducing. They reproduced by dividing, by division. So they were sort of very different. They were not recognizably human. This mitosis. is according to the secret doctrine. Is that mitosis? Uh, yes, yes, mitosis. That's right. So... Just, just like like an amoeba or something like that. So they would sort of split by division rather than by, um, yeah, you know, modern human uh, means. <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah. And then the second root race was it's written about a bit more in the secret doctrine. That's the Hyperborean. The name of their continent is actually mentioned. It was named as Hyperborea. So of course you hear a lot about this in esotericism. This is sort of the yeah one of the big ones. Um, they were more physical, um, but still somewhat etheric. 
And then the most well, well, the, the two most well known would be the the two that follow. You get the Lemurian. They, they lived in Lemuria. Uh, this was a significant period, according to the Secret Doctrine, because the during this period of Lemuria, this is when the division of the sexes took place. So prior to this, there was just one one sex. After this, there were two sexes, um, and reproduction by those means therefore became possible. Um, so it's a according the secret doctrine kind of goes through each of these sub stages in a lot of detail. So it's because each sub it's, it's, yeah. it's right, but it's this might be one of those comparisons that's more dangerous to, to just put out there. But again, do your own research. I don't you don't know when we've already done that caveat. But when you think about the five ages of the Greeks or the eight ages of the Greeks there, there is some, there is some parallel there. There is. It'd be interesting to study that uh, more closely. I'm sure people have. I'm sure people have done doctorates in it. But yeah, go, go on, please. But it's also actually hyperborea because we talked about hyper before and hypo. Hyperborea. Oh, yes. right? yeah, we're coming back to. Is like, isn't like that. it's like the land at the end of the world. Isn't that what it, it translates to? Uh, basically, uh, yeah. From sort of from outside the world or from above the world, from my understanding. Right. Um, yeah. It was also considered to be located in the North, which I think was pr- probably partly explaining the hyper um, side of things as well. Yeah. Um, also as a, as an additional disclaimer, I will say that I don't personally subscribe to the uh, theory of root races as put forward in the secret doctrine, but I'm, I'm very interested in studying it from say a, a scholarly perspective and i also think that there's there's certain there's something to it perhaps i i like the idea of looking at humanity as a series of stages of developments in which different skills are learnt. i like the idea of a purposeful evolution these are very theosophical ideas um so th- there's certain aspects of it which i subscribe to but i don't subscribe to the literal let's say this at this certain point at this certain number of millions of years ago, this particular thing happened. And so I, I don't subscribe to the particulars, but perhaps I subscribe to certain of the general themes or conclusions that could be drawn from, from the idea of root races. And I think it is helpful to look at evolution uh, from a perspective of meaning, which the secret, the secret doctrine does. Um, there's a purpose to evolution and sort of life is leading somewhere. That's quite a, an interesting way of looking at it. So instead of blind evolution, um, I also like the idea of seeing human, human development as being categorized into stages of, yeah, of significant development. So each of these root races kind of developed something developed into a particular, uh, you know, important, um, feature or, or so on of of humanity lots of cultural so, stages of man from 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 mm-hmm. uh, very many first nations to to the yeah. egyptian dynasties the sumerian dynasties it's yeah, i just mentioned the greeks there's you know this is this is hardly related just to just to the root races again comparisons yeah. can be dangerous and incomplete do you do your own studies on them but uh you know this this is you know hardly simply theosophical or perhaps the theosophical gave names that, that are different to the other things. But again, the, you know, that, that might be for another show. I, I don't know enough about it, yeah. any of these things. 
But for instance, and this this is probably much more controversial anyway, but just for instance, within each broad category, like the Lemurian um, category, there would be sub-races. And each of these sub-races might be either races which exist today or which were the progenitors of races that exist today. So for instance, within the uh, Lemurian race, you got things like the... Um, they would be considered to be the progenitors of much of Africa, much of Southern India, much of the East Indies would be considered to have come from the Lemurian stage. Yeah. And then there's also some disagreement in the, the, the people who are proponents of Lemuria as to whether it was one thing or Lemuria and Mu were different, uh, you know, uh, yes. related. And if Lemuria itself extended just from the Indian ocean to the, the West coast of Australia or went all the way across to South America. I mean, there, there's, yeah, there's that as well. Um, so, yes, yeah. so it, there was a lot of disagreement about exactly where Lemuria existed. Um, Madame Blavatsky was definitely of the idea that Easter Island was the remnant of Lemuria. It's quite interesting. Um, so she particularly writes about Easter Island as being, and the, the statues on Easter Island as being built by the Lemurians. Yeah, but there's, there's, there were so many researchers. I, I remember it was it was quite a few years ago. It might have been back in, in 2016. I did a series of lectures on Lemuria at the Theosophical Society in the Philippines. But uh, it's been quite a while. I haven't really spoken on it since then. So I'm sort of <laughs> reaching into, into my memory to recall some of this. But yes, um, yeah, Blavatsky considered it to be in... Bienvenido a Kaiser Permanente. El doctor ya te puede ver. Verá que aunque eres muy activo, ahora te cansas más rápido de lo normal. Verá que a menudo almuerzas comida rápida. Verá que pones a tu familia primero y tu salud tiende a caer en segundo o tercer lugar. Y claro que verá que tienes el azúcar alto, igual que tu papá. En Kaiser Permanente trabajamos juntos para ver todo lo que tú eres y darte el cuidado que tú mereces. Kaiser Permanente, para todo lo que tú eres. Leftovers or the DMV or house cleaning or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In, in that region, in any case. Yeah. Correct. Um, yes. And then there was, of course, Atlantis, the other big one. All right. And Atlantis was interesting in the theosophical conception because it was considered at this time humans developed the ability for magic and that they became so advanced in their use of technology that they had, you know, aircraft, they had advanced cities and technology, um, a lot of this being powered perhaps through the use of magic. Um, but then again, magic and where, where magic ends or how magic's defined in contrast to, let's say, electricity is always a tricky one to distinguish because in the philosophical conception, magic is not supernatural. It's an aspect of nature, just an untouched upon aspect of nature, much like electricity. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit hard to say, is this magic in the sense of someone, you know, uh, 
clapping their hands and something appears, or is it more magic in the sense that we don't understand it according to yeah our present right or the according our, our to science developmental it's... level yeah. Is it because obviously electricity would have been seen as a, as magic, you know, in, in times past? So, yeah, it's, it's a bit difficult to say, but in any case, this civilization developed, it became extremely powerful, um, in, in terms of their development, in terms of their control of nature. The word control is sort of used here rather than coexistence or use or of nature, it's more of a control or dominance of nature, and eventually, as as things do, this this power reached too great a level and resulted in collapse. This is where we get similarities to the book of Genesis. So at this time of decadence, we find a series of natural disasters occur. Some great earthquakes uh, happen, resulting in floods. These floods obviously wipe out the and, and bury the, the continent beneath the sea, mm-hmm. submerge the continent, uh, as in the traditional story. So something else is that each of the root races is destroyed by a, a natural disaster. Yeah. Okay, so we've got, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, we, we, we didn't start with Hyperborea. Who, who was first? Uh, we started with the Polarians. The Polarians. Then we went to Hyperborea. Uh, yeah. Then it went into Lemuria. Uh, yeah. or Mew, then Atlantis? Yeah, now we're on Atlantis, that's right. And don't worry, we're not going through all seven, because not all seven have happened yet. So, Ooh, well, well, yeah, well, after... Where does Tartaria <laughs> fit into this, or does it? I'm sorry, which one was that? Tartaria, Tartarian? Ah, uh, Tartaria, yeah. Well, that's a non-theosophical idea. Um... It doesn't originate with theosophy, although I do. I know it originates with some sort of esotericism from around that time. I I know very little about that because I really approached it from the theosophical perspective. I see. I mean, it seemed like a, it was almost like Atlantis, but in Eurasia, yeah, uh, kind of thing, or maybe even a further further north. Um, probably- I've heard. I've definitely heard of it, um, but just not so much. Like it's not a theosophical idea, or it's not considered to be one of the theosophical lost continents. So it's not one I've really gone into in any depth. I've only heard mention of it in passing. Okay, That's, listen, fair enough. Um, I this might be the same answer, but what about like Vedic India? Vedic India, you know, like the um, Mahabharata, where they had the basically the Star Wars fight on, you know, uh, yeah. On Earth. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, well, well, that's considered to be an event which which took place uh, in the theosophical understanding. That seemed to be an event which took place, but at a much later period than the Atlantean. Right, I think so the Veda. Uh, I had a guess during the Aryan root race. Yeah, I, I should I, be the. I think next they said one. about five thousand years ago. Yeah, five thousand years ago. Yeah. 5,000. BC, which you know was between five and seven thousand years ago. That's right. Yes, I also did a lecture series on that. Um, the traditional <laughs> Hindu, well, the traditional Hindu view is that it occurred some five thousand years ago. That's right. Um, and the yeah, there's there's also arguments whether there was a historical. Like uh, it's actually. You know, like modern historians are considering whether there was some kind of big conflict or war which occurred at that time, which might have formed the basis for the legend. 
well, of the myth. Well, my, just like Troy. Well, my understanding is that uh, is that they they were like weapons, like nuclear weapons, and apparently there is a part of India which is so nuclear uh, radiated or radiated that yeah. uh, you know that it, it, it's not livable. Nothing will grow there. I mean, I yeah. never hear about this on the news or anything. You know, I hear about it in you know the the, the YouTube you know internet podcast yeah. world, but. The, my guest from India said, "Yeah, it, it's true. It, it, it's it's here, and you know, he he lives in India, so I, I you know, I can't. <laughs> how, how can I dispute that?" Right, right, yeah. So uh, basically, the problem with the interpretation of something like the Mahabharata is that many scholars say rather than there being Hinduism, there's multiple Hinduisms. Mm-hmm. There's multiple perspectives, and they range anything from, let's say, the most polytheistic. To even atheistic, and you get you get like this huge diversity of belief within the broad category of Hinduism, and then you can even go outside of Hinduism and look at you know what about the perspectives of Jainism and Buddhism and the various other minor like some other minor belief systems that have developed in India as well, and then how does Theosophy fit into all of that? So you get various perspectives about the historicity of it. Um, but some historians are of the opinion that it's something akin to Troy. Troy was considered to be a, just a myth for hundreds of years before an archaeologist actually discovered the ruins of Troy in modern-day Turkey. So it may be, it's often the case that there is some kind of historical basis to legends or myths which later emerge from that and are sometimes exaggerated. Um, so it's, it's interesting in any case, uh, right. yeah, whether it's pure mythology, whether it's um, historical, whether there was some kind of advanced technology which was used. As you say, I've I've heard a bit about what you mentioned, the fact that there are certain lands in India which have this strange barrenness in the region where apparently it uh, took place. Yeah. Right. But yes, uh, so all of that does actually fit into the next category, which is the Aryan root race. And there's another word that people can be a bit, um, yeah, you've got to be a bit careful with. Mm. So the word Aryan has no, again, racist uh, connotation in the theosophical usage. This was some maybe 60, 70 years before uh, its negative usage in Nazi Germany. It was also used uh, academically at the time. It was an academic phrase, not only an esoteric phrase. Aryan basically referred to the Indo-European, just as we were discussing the the languages. Aryan basically meant Indo-European. Right. If he, and Darius Kamali has been on the show many times, and he's clarified this many times. Basically, Aryan is the same as Iranian. It's the same as Armenian. Uh, Scythians were Aryan, yeah. um, and yes, some of them were blonde hair, blue eyes, but 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 some of them were also, you know, as you would picture a you know a, a Persian. The person being now, well, actually, he also says Persian's a language and uh, Iran is the country. So uh, in any event, you, you, you know, a vast diversity of, uh, you know, looks and skin tones and hair colors, uh, you know, uh, among those folks. And, and certainly, um, you know, what you could, what you consider like the Captain America looking Caucasian to be only but one of them. Right. Yeah. And, Exactly. So it's it's definitely not about skin color right. uh, at all, because within this broad category, there are many subdivisions. Yeah. yeah. 
And the the Aryan root race were basically the they emerged from the fourth root race, so they emerged from the descendants of Atlantis. So the survivors of Atlantis went on to sort of become the progenitors of the Aryan race. Um, and that's the race which is ongoing, in the sense that the, this, according to the philosophical worldview, this is the Aryan root race now that um, that the majority of people belong to. Of course, not all, because as I mentioned, some it's not a clear cut category. So there are people, according to the philosophical perspective, some people living today are descendants of, let's say, the the earlier root races like the Lemurian or the Atlantean. Um, but most people, the, the vast majority of people, would be considered to belong to the Aryan root race, and also some would be considered to be the early state in the early stages of the next root race, which is only beginning to um, develop according to Theosophy. Uh, the sixth root race is considered to there. There was some disagreement by different Theosophists, but generally it was considered to be coming out of America. America was, especially at the time that Menel Blavatsky wrote The Secret Doctrine, of course, um, America was sort of this land of hope, um, and this land of new beginnings, this land of sort of um, opportunity. So it kind of makes sense, perhaps, from that perspective, that it would be seen as the birthplace of the new, the new humanity, right? Um, some theosophists also posited Australia as a possible uh location for the new root race but Madame Blavatsky went with went with uh, America anyway so the the idea for, for those theosophists who kind of take it literally um, which I'd say is maybe not as many as there used to be um, but those who do take it literally would consider some Americans but not all Americans to be members of this new emerging root race, what? which won't emerge fully for thousands of years yet. Well, does it, will it have a name? Does it have a name? You know, I know we're going to grow into the name. Yeah. Under this. So it's, it's unnamed simply for the fact that it's not, um, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, so yeah. that the sixth and the seventh have not, have not been named. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. So, well, uh, yeah, well, what's America right now? <laughs> World's in trouble. Uh, uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to root out the fifth root race before we get to the sixth and the seventh. It sounds like maybe it might be like the uh, the what was the, the which which age of the Greeks was was where everything went wrong? Was it the Bronze Age? I I, I don't know. Uh, not I, the I historical Bronze Age, but in yes. the mythological. Anyway, uh, yeah. so who? So we'll say unnamed one. We're starting it now. We'll get there in, in another uh, millennia or two, and then we'll have some sort of downfall, probably, you know, another yeah. millennia, you know, within a millennia of that. And so who, then what would be unnamed two? What, what is the, well, what are the characteristics of unnamed one um, at, at, yeah. to the best of your, of the theosophical yeah. thinking? So, yeah, one thing I forgot to mention is that we're going through the sevenfold process, right? Mm-hmm. So we've gone from, we, we've sort of descended. It's a descent and a rise. So we've descended from the most spiritual, going back to the Polarian and the Hyperborean, then gradually becoming more physical, and finally kind of culminating in the physicality of the Lemurian race, the third root race, where mm-hmm. the separation of the sexes occurred, and then reaching a level of decadence, in Atlantis, 
the fourth root race. So on the collapse of this, of the fourth root race, um, in fact, you could say that the fourth was kind of a balance because four being where it is, you know, between from one to seven, four being the sort of midpoint. The fourth root race was sort of considered to be both physical and the beginning of a new spirituality. So the Atlanteans were extremely decadent or physical or obsessed with materiality, but at the same time, they bore within the seed for a new spiritual awakening. And it's that spiritual awakening which is developing in the current Aryan race. Bienvenido a Kaiser Permanente. El doctor ya te puede ver. Verá que aunque eres muy activo, ahora te cansas más rápido de lo normal. Verá que a menudo almuerzas comida rápida. Verá que pones a tu familia primero y tu salud tiende a caer en segundo o tercer lugar. Y claro que verá que tienes el azúcar alto, igual que tu papá. En Kaiser Permanente trabajamos juntos para ver todo lo que tú eres y darte el cuidado que tú mereces. Kaiser Permanente, para todo lo que tú eres. So if the current race is becoming more spiritual, more spiritually aware than the Atlantean, it's suggesting an upward trend again. So from the from a downward trend into matter, there's now a ascent back to spirit, right? So with each of the next unnamed races, they're going to be gradually more spiritual. So the six root races characterized by... Um, Dramatic shifts in personality, uh, spiritual shifts in personality, um, a focus on spirit rather than materiality in general, and the focus on spiritual wealth as opposed to material wealth. So these are some of the, the really central characteristics. Well, I'm in the sixth stage because I used to be focused on material wealth, and now I'm much more focused on spiritual Right, well, you're you're in that special new category of uh, of this root race. As they said, there are some progenitors around already, so it sounds like you're one of them. Maybe we'll call them the Jeffites. <laughs> uh, that sounds sounds like a good name, actually. Yeah, the Jeffarians. <laughs> well, not Aryan. <laughs> we can't do Jeffarians. The Jeffites. Well, stick the Jeff the, the Jeffites, Jeffites from Jeffzikas. It's got a sort of uh, biblical. Biblical sound to it, and Canaanites. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to start a move. I'm going right. to become a cult leader. That's 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 my new career. <laughs> yes. uh, in, interestingly, a lot of um, with discussing root races and theosophy, there were a bunch of you know cults which did break off from theosophy Absolutely. and all sorts of things. Always um, do. And yeah, it's, it's, I, I loved sort of delving into these little rabbit holes and seeing. Uh, Can I guess? Yeah, there were all sorts. Can I guess the seventh? Sorry. I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but I'm yes, guessing. Sure, yeah. the, the guessing is when we've reached full spirituality and reach basically apotheosis. We've basically all become Enoch and Ascend. Uh, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. So basically, basically, but it's a little bit more complex. So basically it suggests that things like what might be considered sin, have been eliminated. So people are entirely spiritual, moral, ethical um, in their interactions with one another and with the world. Um, physical processes have ceased to exist. So the, for example, there's no separation of the sexes anymore. There's a single sex. So it's returned to the pre-Lemurian sing singularity of sex. 
Um, therefore, there's no sort of painful birth, no painful death. None of this occurs. Everything happens kind of more smoothly and painlessly. Um, but there's still a degree of matter because to be a root race must be physical. And so there's still a, there's still something separating. And then after that, rather than say unity with, with the absolute or whatever, actually we do it all again. And we've got to do it all again seven times. So there's seven, there's seven sub races that fit into seven root races. Those seven root races each go around one globe, but there's seven globes. So you've got to, then there's, you know, so that you've got to kind of times that by seven as well. Lucky sevens. Um, yeah. And then basically everything happens repeatedly. So while there is a period of union in the absolute, um, again, there's also a period of manifestation. So there's, there's a period of repeated manifestation or periodic manifestation and periodic uh, sleep, we could say. It's just like the hybrids in Battlestar Galactica reboot said, all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. Yeah, yeah, you could sort of draw the yeah, <laughs> connection to that, definitely. But um, yeah, so there's, there's, two, there's two significant periods of, of equal balance in philosophy. There's prolia, the period of sleep, the period of period of rest we could say and and prolia is sort of when it's a period in which sort of nothing not so much that nothing exists but no thing exists uh it's often in philosophy it's often written as n-o hyphen t-h-i-n-g so no thing but not nothing in the sense that the absolute must always exist parabrahman to use the sanskrit word the the absolute must always be in existence, but not to be in the sense of being manifested. Then there's the Manvantara. Manvantara is the period of liveliness, uh, of existence, of manifestation. So the root races and the globes, all of this can only occur within Manvantara, the period of, of creation, the period of uh, manifestation. Therefore, this would be considered to be a period of Manvantara, because if we were in the period of Pralaya, we would all be one. We would all be in union with the Absolute. There would be only one thing, one fundamental reality. Oh, yeah. How old are you now? I'm, I'm 29. Okay, you're 29 now. When we first met, I think you were 27. And, you know, I've, I've said for a long time, you're definitely a vampire because you know too much. But you're too good to be a vampire. So I haven't decided, like, see, my, my, my Bible knowledge isn't that good. So I'm not sure if we ever established, like, if Seth, or, you know, died or not. Or, you know, and nobody really knows what happened to Lazarus after he was re- resurrected. But I think in, you're, in my suspect pool is that you're either Seth or Lazarus. And, you know, you're, you're just sort of, you, you might be 29 now, but you're, you're really, like, Six thousand and twenty nine. <laughs> right, your yeah, well, pre flood human lifespan. <laughs> Perhaps I'm a, a Lemurian or or something, but <laughs> not really. <laughs> no, but I. Right. Well, I, I just I enjoy researching, and I, you know, I, I think it, it's never about what you know. It's you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but it, it's what you don't know. You know, it's a quote Socrates, the, the greatest wisdom is in knowing that you know nothing. So um, I think 
I actually, I'm continually humbled actually by how many people that say younger than myself or other than myself, in any case, know so much more than I do. So it's, it's not, it's definitely not about comparison. It's simply about people are focused in different directions. Sure. So yeah, I, I'm, for example, I'm terrible at mathematics, so I have nothing but respect for people who are, you know, uh, very much adept at, at that, that area, because that, that's another topic which uh, mathematics is, is very intrinsic to, sure. let's say, to esotericism. Sure, you got the, the golden of, compass, right? The, the, what, the golden mm-hmm. ratio. Yeah. So I, I think mathematics is very much the language of the universe, seeing as we were discussing uh, sure. languages before. But that's something that I'm not very good at at all. It's, it's something I, I just, my mind doesn't work in that way. <laughs> so that's something I have nothing but respect for, for those who can wrap their minds around that and to some extent read the language of the universe. Well, stay humble, um, young so, man, but as far as I, I can tell, you you, you are a, 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 a sliver of the top 1% as far as knowledge is concerned. You're, you're uh, I, I'm honored to know you. I'm humble that you keep returning to the show and I can't wait to find other things that you can speak upon without imposing on you too much with your busy schedule because I, I never want to be a nudge, but I absolutely love having you on the show like twice a year because uh, I find it to be amazing. Um, so anyway, anything else that we want to talk about on the root languages or linguistics? Or I, I think we've done, well, you've done a fantastic job. I, I you know, I've probably steered it in the, uh, you know, the straw man for the audience and, and, you know, uh, you know, baseline to semi above baseline questions and maybe some semi below baseline questions. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, again, why don't you tell people where they can find you if you want to be found, if they can support you, if you need to be supported or want to be, and you know, whatever else you're working on that you want to promote. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, just to end on with one last maybe note, um, mm-hmm talking about these different root races and different levels of development is kind of worth also stating that Madame Blavatsky considered there to be no inferior or lesser races due to the fact that all existed as one common humankind. So it's kind of like the, just simply the difference of say being a child or being a teenager or being an adult. Um, it's often also quoted as, just being at different levels on the on the ladder, different rungs on the ladder, but everyone has been where everyone else is, and everyone will be where everyone else is. So, in terms of development, theosophically speaking, we have all been where everyone else who is currently, say, behind is. We've been there before, and we will all be at the same place that those who are ahead of us are. Except you, who's a mortal. <laughs> but um but there's this kind of it's a nice way of looking at the world because it, it, there isn't any competition in that sense everyone it has come from the same place and is going to the same place everyone's going to share those same experiences at one point in time absolutely yeah circle of life uh which it's still not the outro song it's collective soul um uh, connected, even though I'm not going to put it in there because I don't know how to edit on this program. So, uh, Luke, again, uh, offer you another opportunity to plug yeah. or promote yourself if, if there's anything sure. that you want to plug or promote. Yeah. Um, in terms of my online presence, I have a somewhat limited online presence. I don't 
do a lot of things that some people do. I don't do much uh, social media. I do do Facebook, just Facebook, but I don't do all the others. So um, yes, you can look me up on Facebook. It's Luke Michael together, the, the conventional spelling, Luke Michael dot Ironside dot 37. But if you just search my name on on social media, it will generally come up. I think I have a somewhat unusual name. Um, yeah, so I do post a lot about my travels, my work, um, sometimes my articles, which have been published or lectures or anything I'm doing. I'm doing a bit less of that now than I used to. I'm also taking more of a role of a host um, more more recently through the Old Catholic Education Society. But I do on occasion still give uh, talks or workshops or, or other things yeah. from time to time. You shouldn't deprive yeah. the world of, of your lectures. <laughs> right, yeah. It's, it's more a matter of... Um, I, I think there's periods for... Periods for outputting and periods for inputting. I'm, I'm going through a period of, of inputting and, and learning and research. Whatever you say, I go yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can you can also look up the Old Catholic Apostolic Church UK or worldwide. I will bring you to the website. So if you search for that or if you just put in liberalcatholics.uk, um, it's the only one with that name really so it's usually the sort of the top google result um there you can find a bit more about the the church i'm i belong to and from there you can also find my my clergy page you can find the the page of the old catholic education society uh, which provides a bit more information as well excellent and you should definitely look into that because the old catholic church is very interesting if you've never heard of it before you're not clear what it is um, very different than the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and, and that's not in the pejorative. I'm just saying it's very different. Um, you can form your own conclusions. Anyway, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, when I hit stop, I'll just ask you to hang around for a few seconds because it, it helps with the uploading of the show properly. Uh, folks, sorry, I told you I don't know how to edit in a song, so sing in your head, collective soul, connected, uh, because it absolutely applies. Or do Circle of Life, you know, whatever it is. You're on your own. You're all free. Compare and contrast whatever song you feel is appropriate. Thank you again, Luke, and thank you all for listening. Please rate, review, and refer your friends to us. And uh, and Luke, if you know anybody who knows anything about Tartaria or any of those other things, I, I would welcome referrals, as you know. All right, folks, thanks very much. We'll hear from you again next week in the Garden of Doom. Bienvenido a Kaiser Permanente. El doctor ya te puede ver. Verá que aunque eres muy activo, ahora te cansas más rápido de lo normal. Verá que a menudo almuerzas comida rápida. Verá que pones a tu familia primero y tu salud tiende a caer en segundo o tercer lugar. Y claro que verá que tienes el azúcar alto, igual que tu papá. En Kaiser Permanente trabajamos juntos para ver todo lo que tú eres y darte el cuidado que tú mereces. Kaiser Permanente, para todo lo que tú eres. Leftovers. Or... The DMV Number 97 Or House cleaning Or Chumba Casino always brings the fun Play over a hundred different games online For free from anywhere You could redeem some serious prizes Chumbacasino.com Live the Chumba life No purchase necessary Void where prohibited by law T plus terms and conditions apply See website for details